You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech, the Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Lowry Curley, uh, CEO of AxoSim, and the website is axosim.com. So, Lowry, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for the time. Yeah, so tell me, what's the uh, the premise of AxoSim? What do you guys do? Yeah, the, the premise of AxoSim, it really starts with the fact that animal models are terrible predictors of how new drugs will work in humans as they're going through the research and development process. And unfortunately for neurodegenerative diseases like ALS, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, this failure rate is incredibly high. 94% of the time, a drug that goes through all the testing in the lab and then ultimately goes through animal testing, you know, 94% of the time it doesn't work in humans. The the fact is animal biology simply isn't human biology, and that's really the problem that that we've set out to solve. Well, even when you say animal biology, I recently read that it's mostly mice. You know, it's not even, let's say, multiple types of animals. And uh, so maybe mouse biology really is not very akin to human biology. That's definitely true. Yeah, mice is really where they start. Um, You know, they'll they'll ultimately try in other animals, but... uh, yeah, you know, my, mouse is the easiest one to work with, but you know, when you talk about mouse Alzheimer's, it's not too similar to what humans have, unfortunately. All right, so these animal models have a tremendous failure rate. What's what's your premise? What are you working to do? Like, what kind of models are you creating? So the models that that we work with basically uh, start with human stem cells, and these are reprogrammed adult cells that start with a skin biopsy. And some people who are smarter than I figured out how to take a skin cell, turn it back into a stem cell, and then differentiate that into a nerve cell. So that's what we start with. And obviously, you know, the biology there is human. Um, And we take that and, and rather than just looking at, you know, a single cell or a handful of cells in a Petri dish, we actually take them and we engineer this into a three-dimensional environment. The point of that is that it directly mimics, you know, the, the environment and the interactions that a cell would experience in any of our bodies. You know, at its, at its base, that's really what it is. And we have two different platforms that we work with. We have a nerve on a chip, which is more indicative of cells that are, or nerves that are outside of your spinal cord and brain. And then we have a mini brain that is actually mimics the cells that are, as you can guess by the name, actually in your brain. Hmm. And I'm happy to go into more details about how that works, but uh, it depends on how technical you'd like me to get. Well, nerve on a chip just 
sounds to me like it's a lot easier than brain on a chip because uh, the brain has so many functions. I don't know how you'd approximate all those functions on any kind of chip, but uh, maybe start with a nerve on a chip. Would, are you trying to emulate all the functions of a nerve or just some of them? And, uh, you know, what does it look like? Yeah, you know, I mean, to, to your point of the brain is, you know, more difficult to recapitulate or recreate, that's 100% true. I mean, you have so many cell types, so much complex organization in the brain. And even with the nerve, I mean, it's it's more complex and there are more types of cells involved than I think most people would realize. At some level, it boils down to making the best available model. You know, is it going to be exactly a human brain? Not quite, uh, but it's close enough that, that it's better than animals. And so I will start with the nerve on a chip. And I think it's pretty easy to imagine, at least for me, although I've been working at this for over a decade, so I'm a little biased. Essentially, what we do by engineering this, as I mentioned, into this three-dimensional environment, we control the way these cells organize and we control the way that this nerve grows so that what we end up with at the end of kind of our development of the nerve on a chip is you have what looks exactly like nerves uh, emanating or you know coming out of the spinal cord and going all the way to the tip of your finger. And just like if you touch something hot, you know, that electrical signal goes all the way from the tip of your finger to your spinal cord. And that's exactly the data we are able to gather, although, you know, in a lab rather than in an animal or in, in a human, like they would if they went to a neurologist. And what happens is if you have some kind of trouble with this nerve, then what what you see is that that signal slows down going from the tip of your finger again to the spinal cord and it also gets weaker so ultimately there comes a point where that signal might disappear altogether or you lose sensation enough that it's it's extremely problematic and the the other component of that that we have that adds a level of complexity that's quite unique is we have interaction with a cell called a schwann cell and what this Schwann cell does essentially is creates myelination. So just like with an electrical cord that you see you know, running above your street, there's a rubber wrapping around that. And that allows that signal to conduct from one point to another. You interrupted that rubber, uh, the rubber wrapping, then that signal would basically die right there. So that's another level of complexity. We engineer that. And there's direct implications with that myelin uh, in a number of of diseases. So well, that's the, the, in the human body, uh, you know, if I touch a hot stove, is there uh, is there one gigantic nerve that goes all the way from my finger to my brain, or is it uh, does it go from nerve to nerve to nerve and you know go through myriad pathways? It does go through myriad pathways. It's a good point. At least the part of it, the pathway that is from the tip of your finger to your spinal cord. So that's sort of the first order of that pathway. You know, that is one, it's basically, you know, unidirectional. Granted, it involves tens of thousands of nerves, which our, com our components many? also are tens of thousands. Yeah, there's there's quite a few wrapped up. And, you know, if you think about your finger, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about in, in, in serial, though, like in parallel. Sure, I'm sure, you know, you don't just have one nerve in your finger, but um, in parallel, I'm sure there's thousands of them. But what about in serial? Like, literally, if you just look at one nerve that experiences the heat how many what, what does it go through to get to the spinal cord like how many different uh cells does it go through gotcha yeah i was thinking uh in in parallel which is really what ours captures it's, ours captures that first basically from the tip of the finger towards what they call a dorsal root ganglia right outside of your spine 
you know, from there it does extend up into sort of the first order synapse into what's called the dorsal horn. And that's the part of the, the spinal cord that sends that the rest of the way up into your brain. Now, once it gets into your brain, things get extremely complicated. And there, I don't know that anyone exactly knows how many cells that might go through, but, you know, in there you are talking about thousands of them, you know, in any given, right. uh, you know, cubic whatever. Um, and so once it gets to that point, it, it certainly gets diffused. Uh, much more so. But the first two orders of that really are um, relatively simple. The be your finger to the dorsal root ganglia to the dorsal horn and then up. So what do you, so you're looking to emulate what a real nerve would be like, but uh, you know, okay, so let, let's say you do that and you're testing it and it does seem to you know, act similarly. Then what? what? Are you trying to test medications that can restore function if you damage that model you've made? Or like what, what specifically are you trying to do once you know your model is working and it's somewhat similar to what actually goes. Sure. There are two parts to what we do, and it depends kind of on where we are helping a pharmaceutical company. So one of them is starting from kind of the opposite of, um, you know, what, what we're talking about here with recovery. It's actually looking at toxicity. So a lot of drugs and chemotherapeutic drugs in particular have, you know, off-target side effects. They have unintended damage to a number of areas of the body, but the nervous system and the peripheral nervous system in particular is the main reason that a clinician actually will either dial back or cease chemotherapy altogether. So it's very, very problematic. And what that induces is what's called neuropathy. So what you see there, again, is that signal from the tip of your finger to your spinal cord. That is what gets this, gets interrupted. And so we help pharmaceutical companies, for instance, we're working with a company that is developing you know, next generation uh, chemotherapy drug. They already have one on the market and now they're kind of you know, bringing out their, like I said, the next generation. And we're helping them by screening about 10 of their drugs that they have developed that they feel very confident in that they want to take to humans, but they don't fully trust the animal models. And so we're able to put that into our system and get those, that conduction velocity, that tip of your finger to your spinal cord, and that lets them really predict what's going to happen in humans. And from that, you know, we've helped them prioritize, you know, a handful of those 10, kind of narrow that down to the ones that they think are going to be the safest. And then, you know, they, they make the decision of balancing how effective is it with how safe is it. And ultimately, they'll be moving one of those drugs into clinical trials with us being a, a part of the process, which really is, is our mission. And that, that's what drives us is to, you know, enable these advancements in, in human neuroscience. And so the flip side of the well, safety, mm -hmm. I was just going to say the flip side of the safety, you know, really is looking at protection or regeneration. So, you know, if you know that one of these toxic drugs is going to go into your body, you know, there's the idea that you can administer a drug at the same time to protect it. Uh, a number of companies are working on that. And then if you already have the damage, you know, let's say whether it's from neuropathy, which can be from diabetic neuropathy, it can be age-related neuropathy. You know, if you can introduce a drug that will actually help reverse that damage, you know, that's, that's where you really get to reach a, a much broader audience. And, and, you know, a lot of people, yeah, my grandfather suffered from neuropathy. A lot of people need help. It, it can be debilitating. Yeah, no, I, I've uh, experienced a little bit of it myself, but do you, do you feel like you understand the mechanisms of at least one kind of neuropathy better than 
the scientific literature understands it, or does science understand it pretty well? You know, neuropathies actually are pretty well understood. And, you know, as far as mechanism goes, of course, with our model, you know, it's not a fully intact human. Uh, you know, there's not the entire system's biology. But the mechanisms that we're able to parse out from this really are, okay, are the nerves themselves dying back at the end? So, you know, are the nerves at the tip of your finger dying themselves? Or at your spinal cord, you know, are the nerve cells, the neurons, are those the one dying? Those are two completely different mechanisms. And depending on the type of neuropathy or the type of side effect, they're affected differentially. So we are able to parse that out. And then I mentioned that myelin before, that conductive wrapping. That's another area that's affected differentially depending on the mechanism. So we're not necessarily able to look at every single mechanism that may influence it, but the main drivers of either that damage um, or that toxicity, you know, we are able to parse out and, and help these pharma companies understand, you know, are they reversing it? Are they accidentally hitting some of these mechanisms and, and help them redesign their drugs so that it works better? Well, I know some of this is proprietary, but what can you say about the mechanism? Like, what has your model shown are the true mechanisms of X number of kinds of neuropathy? Choose one. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting, you know, the, at the heart of this, it's science, obviously. Um, and, and the way we sell this to pharmaceutical companies is they're scientists. So we have been supported by a number of federal grants, primarily the National Institute of Health. And what that allowed us to do is run a bunch of chemotherapy drugs that had been on the market for a significant amount of time. And because there's data from this testing, you know, how it, what it looks like in the lab to what it looked like in animals to ultimately how it performed in humans, and what, what we've seen tracks very closely with what was seen clinically. And what's interesting there is there's actually a few drugs that targeted the myelin, which is very unique to what we have, that did not get picked up in some of the laboratory tests, when, in these in vitro tests, because they didn't have the right interactions of the cells that produce myelin, whereas in ours, we do have that component. And we were able to see that that would have happened before any other laboratory test would have seen. And now mm. that same drug, when it went into animals, they did see some instances of this neuropathy or this neurotoxicity, but they thought that it was minor enough that they went into humans anyway. And then once it got into clinical trials, they saw up to 40% of patients got affected by this neuropathy, nowhere near what they saw in animals. And um, you know, this was a while ago, and, and it was before there was many other options in chemotherapy. So they did let that go. And so it is actually being prescribed in the clinic, but patients, uh, sorry, clinicians are really not using this drug anymore because of those side effects. So if a pharma company had used us, we would have seen that neuropathy. We would have seen that mechanism of the myelination and presumably could have either helped them stop that drug from moving forward or helped them kind of reformulate it so that it did not have those side effects. So how do you move forward? How do you become the standard? You know, how do you, how do you get FDA process where the FDA says, you know, use the animal model, but you also have to use Axosim's model as well for drugs that affect nerves and drugs that affect the brain. You know, they're required now because we've seen that they, improve the uh, the likelihood that a drug will actually work? How do you get ensconced in that pathway? Yeah, and, and I think you made an important, important distinction there, you know, in saying that can we use these in, in conjunction and in parallel with animals? You know, as much as, as, much as myself and, and other companies like me and even pharma acknowledges, you know, animals aren't good predictors. 
but at the same time, you know, they they are used now, they are well understood, and, and they do work sometimes. And frankly, the FDA is conservative. So we're not going to replace them immediately, but being able to supplement them and reduce that animal testing while increasing the efficacy is what we're looking at. And I'll say we've had conversations with the FDA. They're really excited about technology like ours, and they're excited to be able to use it, but they're very conservative. And, you know, I would say rightly so. We don't want the FDA to kind of just willy-nilly let new technologies in and, and without validating them. So it really, it, it, the burden is going to be more on ourselves and the pharmaceutical partners that we work with. So the FDA said, hey, we're tracking this, we're interested in it, but you know, we're not going to be the first ones to just put our rubber stamp of approval on it. Instead, there's a, another company that's doing heart on a chip. We know that they have worked with a pharmaceutical company to generate a set of this data around safety, so around cardiotoxicity. And mm. we've heard anecdotally that this data looks so strong that this pharmaceutical company actually has brought it to the FDA and said, hey, here's what we saw in this, this heart on a chip. Here's what we see in animals. And, you know, here's what we might have seen, um, you know, in some other laboratory-based testing. And all indications are that the FDA is actually going to use that data as part of their decision-making process. So that's, that's step number one. And now if it can happen in heart on a chip, I think that lowers the barrier for somebody like us with nerve on a chip. So, you know, rather than the FDA, like I said, just rubber stamping this, it's going to come from the other direction. It's going to come from the push of pharma saying, look, this technology is better. This technology saves us time and this technology saves us money. You know, let's work with us, FDA, and, and tell us exactly what you need to see. Well, since there's no one being hurt, no animals, no people, nothing, can this be used anyway? You need the FDA's permission to use this. Can you just use it and submit the data, you know, whether the FDA takes it into account or not? Is it a might as well type thing? Or do you need permission to even do this kind of stuff? So we don't need permission to, you know, work with pharmaceutical companies. You know, we already have a number that, that we're working with. And the reason for that is we kind of help them make their decision-making process easier. So to go from, you know, 50 drugs to 10, and then from 10 to the one that they want to take to the FDA. Now, the FDA's official stance is, you know, you can put anything into a package you want. They have guidelines. They don't have regulations. But frankly, these pharmaceutical companies don't want to put data in there until they've talked to the FDA about it, just because they don't necessarily know how the FDA is going to approach that. So they're also conservative about what they put into their package, you know, until they've had those conversations where the FDA says, you know, this data looks good. I think this data will make it stronger. Well, why not a two-pronged approach? Why don't you approach the FDA and get a list of, uh, you know, 20 failed nerve acting drugs? And you say, hey, FDA, you know, We'd like to run these through our nerve on a chip thing and see how it correlates with what was actually found once these got to that last step where they failed. Maybe that's another angle that would get faster adoption of something. Like that. It's definitely another angle, and it, it certainly is one that we're working on. Like I said, you know, we have talked to the FDA. Um, we continue to talk to the FDA, and the FDA technically has put out um, you know, a roadmap to adoption for technology like ours. Now, unfortunately, what, what the FDA has not cohesively either figured out for themselves or told us is, number one, how many drugs do they want to see to accept this, or really even what drugs are they that they want us to test. So we're building up that data set, we're showing it to them, but they have no criteria themselves 
to say with us approaching them, okay, that's enough drugs that, that we test it. So it, it comes down to a bureaucracy and, uh, and a conservative nature of the FDA where they're, they're not going to let us work directly with them, but put together a better package. So yeah, if that makes sense, what they it's want, something we want to do they, with them, but that yeah. it's something that we want to do with them and we're trying to work on, but it's unfortunately not that stuff. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. If the FDA wants, you know, if they want to be able to do their job better and get better outcomes, they should be able to develop some goals and then share them with them. Say, hey, we want this, whether it's unreasonable or not. But how are you supposed to please them if uh, they don't even know what they want? You know, but I guess that's, that's unanswerable, unfortunately. Hmm. You ask a, an excellent question and make a great point, and, and I wish there was an easier answer. So what's the ideal? Um, you know, your nerve chip stuff, for instance, works. Uh, is it better to do it before animal testing in parallel? After animal testing, like what would be the ideal that you would think, a ph- you know, how should a pharmaceutical company use it ideally? So what I, I can answer that by saying, how is it being used now and, and how do we want it to be used? What we're finding right yeah. now is it is being used in parallel with, and in some cases after animals, uh, and both of those situations are because these pharma companies want to get comfortable with it. So this is new technology and, and similar to the FDA, you know, the, the pharma companies are quite conservative, um, surprisingly so, and they want this technology, but they want to vet it. And we can go up to them with a, a set of our own data to say, hey, we tested 25 drugs, and that's enough to get them interested, but they still want to see it for themselves. So they'll typically test us alongside some of their drugs that they know how they're, they've acted or you know, know how they expect them to act, as well as some drugs that they don't know, um, you know of course, along with, with controls as well. And that has allowed them to you know, build a, a comfort level that we are now, at least with one of our customers, working before animals. So helping them pare those drugs down so that they have a better confidence to then move to animals, which of course saves them you know, time and money. But um, you know, they're, they're not quite ready to replace the animals, certainly. And ultimately, that is where we want to go, though. You know, if a pharma company's got 100 drugs, and you know, right now, they're really only able to afford to or comfortable with testing, let's say, 20 of those in animals. You know, if, if we can operate as effectively as, as we think we can and as we've seen that we can, you know, we can let that pharmaceutical company test all 50 of those drugs instead of really having to automatically pare it down to 20 and then say, oh, now we feel really confident in this 10 and we'll take that into animals. And presumably that will translate to, to better success. That's where we want to go. Well, what about their, their closet full of failures? Do drug companies just give up? Or, you know, that's a whole opportunity in itself. You know, all right, give me all your failures. And we'll run our nerve and a chip stuff. And then you can run experiments to make modifications to the drugs that failed. And maybe that'll be a much quicker path to get you a success out of the whole list of failures. Do, will they do that with you more, more likely than uh, other ones that are earlier in the process that they haven't failed on. So we are actually doing that with one customer. It's a really exciting project. Uh, So this this particular pharmaceutical company had basically, uh, they had a program, you know, a number of different analogs of a drug that they, it was was an oncology drug, you know, that they were taking into the clinic. And unfortunately, what they saw was conflicting data in a number of different animal models. They were, you know, they did see these neurotoxic side effects in one or two animals. They didn't in one or two other animals. And they just never got comfortable with moving the drug forward, even though they really, really thought this thing was going to be effective. 
we have are working with them now and are actually testing some of those compounds and we're getting them comfortable enough that they finally do now have a tool to have the comfort level to move this thing forward. And so we're potentially unlocking an entire portfolio of drugs for them that they had completely shelved. So that's absolutely a level and an area we want to to work on, but you know, that that requires a good level of trust and confidence in what we're doing. Well what about for you uh internally? You know, you have your nerve on a chip and your brain on a chip. Again, me not knowing anything, I would think the brain on a chip would be much, you know, orders of magnitude more difficult, but maybe there's a trade off there. Maybe it's more exciting to the pharmaceutical companies or there's more money there. I mean what what have you seen? Which of those two systems do you think is going to be the big winner for you uh, and is going to get faster adoption and will, will make more of an impact? So ultimately, the, the mini brain technology probably has the broader reach. Um, you know, the nerve on a chip is, is what we developed early on. We licensed that technology from Tulane University, and that was actually based on my PhD research. So I've been, been working with this technology for 12 years now, which is exciting. The mini brains we just licensed from Johns Hopkins from the laboratory of a researcher named Thomas Hartung. So it's, you know, we're really just getting this off the ground in our lab, but from the proof of concept that he's had in his lab, in that he's already proven that this technology is, has relevance to multiple sclerosis. It has, um, it has applicability in glioblastoma and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And so, you know, once you start getting in, into those diseases, there's such a need and there's such devastating diseases. And, and frankly, pharmaceutical companies, you know, are working on areas of those drugs. You, know, you can look at Alzheimer's in particular. The number of failures is staggering in Alzheimer's, oh, yeah. unfortunately. Oh, yeah. And it's because they haven't had the right tool. And so this, this mini brain potentially unlocks that tool. So it's kind of a it's kind of a trade off, right? It's the more complex system. So it's a little bit more difficult to tackle, but the upside is, is huge. Yeah, I mean, within many brains, what part of the brain? The amygdala, the hypothalamus, the cortex, two parts of it, three parts of it. I mean, it seems like there's so many different parts to model and so much different functionality. How do you how do you even approach that without, like, I don't know, just being lost in the complexity of it? <laughs> I guess the short answer is you could easily get lost in the complexity of it. And so to not get lost in the complexity of it, you know, you have to kind of go back to what's the best tool available, starting out with a very defined, well-characterized model and building from there. So the mini brain right now really is not a highly specific part of the brain. You know, a lot of people call them cerebral organoids. I would say they're really more applicable, um, you know, for, for the cortex, cortical spheroids. Uh, but again, you know, they're a little bit broad and, you know, that that is good because it gives you a little bit of reach and it allows it to be characterized. But what we go, what where we go from there is becoming more specific with the areas of a brain. So, you know, from the academic side, people have figured out protocols to differentiate those so that they are like certain regions of the brain in particular. And that's definitely an area we want to go. But Taking that, validating that, characterizing that so that a pharma company is ready to use it takes a long time. Now, another way that we are building in complexity with these mini brains. So right now they have three different cells, what I would argue are the three most important, broadly speaking, cell types in the brain. They have neurons, so they have glutamatergic neurons, GABAergic neurons, um, they have uh, nicotinic and then they also have astrocytes, and then they have um, oligodendrocytes. 
and those Oliga dendrocytes are what makes it the most unique because no other commercially available model has those. And then that's also what myelinates the brain, which has implications in diseases we know for sure from multiple sclerosis. And they're starting to identify that that also has implications in Alzheimer's, which is interesting. And so you know, we start with that as our basal model. What we find is we can then introduce other cells into the system to increase the complexity. So one area that's really hot right now and that people think are implicated in a way more diseases than originally thought is microglia. So if you're looking at inflammation, neuroinflammation, and how that plays into a lot of diseases, we can actually add these microglia into our system. And immediately there, you have more complexity, you have more applicability. Another thing, I mentioned glioblastoma before, you know, we can take actual patient biopsies of glioblastoma, introduce those into our mini brains, and we see that they do grow and manifest in the mini brains. And then when treated with some of the first line therapies, you actually see that they shrink and they respond. So you know, the first step really is just being able to add in selectively what cells do we want, what cell types are we interested in. And then you know, I think as the field and the technology grows, bringing in some of that where we can differentiate this into specific specific regions of the brain and, and look at diseases that might right. preferentially affect those. I mean, since you can't do everything, especially in the brain area, are you sub-licensing? Like, you know, you're getting good at this organoid on a chip type stuff, but have you considered sub-licensing? Like, you know, the brain, there's no way we can do these 50 different configurations. So have you talked to other companies that are trying to do organs on a chip and maybe you do the, you know, these five flavors of a brain on a chip and you sublicense your technology to other people that do these other 35 flavors. So you get more coverage and, you know, maybe you get a revenue stream from that and that way you don't have to do all the work. So uh, the way we've approached that, I would say, is, is really kind of the opposite. Um, you know, a couple of hmm. reasons for that. The, the industry is still emerging, let's say. And, and the majority of the players, we do all know each other, whether it's other companies working on neuroscience, you know, or it's other organs on a chip. And, you know, as this company's emerging, the technologies are emerging, I think everybody's still trying to figure out how does everybody fit in there. So while we know what each other are doing, you know, we really haven't explored those technologies, or sorry, those approaches, the sub-licensing, because I think there's so much potential to develop these internally before we start giving out parts of it. We've actually taken the opposite approach where we're scouring academia and we're scouring, you know, other companies who might be uh, maybe a little bit younger or, or emerging, but floundering and licensing their technology. So we, you know, our mission is to be the company that every single pharmaceutical company looks to if they're developing anything in the neurology or anything that has neurological safety implications. So we do want to build that company, recognizing we're not going to be able to do all that internal R&D. So we want to be the ones and we already went to Hopkins and licensed this mini brain technology. Along with that licensing, we actually acquired a company that the inventor, Thomas Hartung, had, had already spun out. And they, that company really laid the commercial groundwork, but he saw you know, the potential in our company to be the ones that really hits the home run with it and takes it to the market. So that's the approach that, that we prefer to take because we want to be the industry leaders. Well, you know, like in, in terms of the nerve on a chip, um, you know, what about nerve regeneration? You know, that's a whole other area. I don't know if, you know, I just wonder how do you have time to do all these things? You know, so it, one company, it doesn't seem possible unless you have unbelievable resources to do it all. <laughs> yeah, the, the answer, unfortunately, is you can't do all of these things. 
we kind of learned that early on when we did we did stretch ourselves a bit too thin. Um, so it's a push and a pull. And, and, you know, myself, I'm a scientist at heart, so I do want to do everything. I do want to chase the interesting questions. But you have to pull back and say, no, what do our customers want? You know, not what are all the million capabilities of this? And so interesting that you talk about nerve regeneration. You know, when I was working on this as a PhD project, we actually were building a model for spinal cord injury and how you can influence spinal cord regeneration. But the fact is, if you're talking about that as a commercial endeavor, you know, you're talking about a clinical pathway that is extremely expensive, extremely time consuming, and, and frankly, is a bit crowded. So that's why we, we realized that technology really fit better into a, an, an application that was untapped and, and had a big need. And that was, the, that was the drug screening. And so that's really where we fit the market. Now, are we still cognizant that there could be other areas like nerve regeneration where this could apply? Sure. But for now, you know, we're trying to stay laser focused. Mm, gotcha. Okay. Well, very good. So what do you think is possible in the near term and in the further future? And you define it. You know, near term could be a year or three years or five years, far term further than that. So, you know, what are some general things that you would be so excited if they happened? What, what do you think is possible? So ultimately, well, I mean, let's start with long term. And I think there's two things that we get excited about. You know, the first one is really to be able to point to a drug that comes out that truly is a cure of, of let's name the neuro, horrible neurodegenerative disease. Let's start with Alzheimer's. You know, our mission really is to be able to point to a drug that goes through clinical trials that is ultimately successful and cures this debilitating disease. And once we can point to that, I mean, our, you know, we have accomplished one of our biggest goals. There's still many, many other diseases to tackle, but, you know, you're talking about a clinical pathway that's a decade plus. So that certainly is a long-term goal. Now, if you start dialing this back to shorter-term goals, you know, personalized medicine is another area that we think kind of in the medium term you know, that, that we could have a serious impact. If you look at a number of neurodegenerative diseases, there's, they're really a family of diseases. When you talk about genetic disorders like ALS, you know, it's not just one gene, and it's not so easy to identify which genes are at play. So you know, if we can go to a patient we can get, you know, a skin biopsy, ultimately turn that into nerve cells and then allow a clinician to screen, you know, a number of, of drugs that they might have tried on the patient and already figure out, you know, in a matter of months rather than years, this treatment is going to be the best one to go into our patient. We don't necessarily know why genetically, but it, it looks that way and then put that into a human. You know, that's, that's certainly something that's doable and it's something that's happening in other areas, cancer being a, a big one of them. Um, there's a company called Kyatech who actually has a clinical trial going on right now where, where they are influencing clinician decisions on, um, on therapeutic treatments. And then, you know, you start dialing back again to shorter term, let's say over the one, next one to three years, really where we, what we're going to call success is broadening our platform so that we're reaching more of the market and having a larger potential. So right now, you know, if you, if you look at the nerve on a chip, neuropathies really are the main area that we're focusing on. You know, there are some rare diseases like uh, um, Marie Charcot tooth disease, Guillain-Barre, uh, ALS has some applications with our nerve on a chip. So we want to be able to address all of those, be a better company and, and be able to have more impact. Then if you look at the mini brain, I already talked about some of the models and we want to have pharmaceutical companies using our 
MS mini brain, our ALS mini brain, our Alzheimer's mini brain. And that gets us on the way to personalized medicine and, and certainly on the way to getting approved drugs out there. Okay. Oh, excellent. So what's the best way for uh, interested parties to get in touch, to see what you're working on, to uh, you know, to interact with you somehow? Website, uh, what do you suggest? Yeah, no, website, definitely. You know, we have some information on there. You can learn a little bit more about what our models actually look like. And when I describe a nerve on a chip or a mini brain <laughs> over the, you know, uh, abstractly, it's kind of hard to see, but we've got some really nice videos on our website. You know, certainly have a way to get in contact with us through the website. But then, you know, we are also active, you know, our, our Twitter account, we're always talking about what conferences are we at. You know, we really try to bring important papers that are coming into the industry, whether they're ours or not, out there and, and really try to, you know, raise awareness for the organ on a chip industry and then, you know, progress that's being made with a lot of these uh, these other diseases. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been good talking to you. Thanks, Larry. Absolutely. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.